ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. This is the Acts of the Apostles. For more information, go to carolinesprings.church. How y'all doing? Ready to go to work? We've got a lot of work to do this morning. Jimmy said we are in week 22 out of 25 weeks in the book of Acts. And some of you have said over uh, the last six months, you know, this is a lot of time to be spending in one book. It turns out, actually, it's about half as much time as we should have spent. And um, I was a bit silly when I was putting this series together, thinking that we could do it before Christmas. We should have really gone about halfway through and then picked it up again next year. Um, And in order to kind of shoehorn it in before Christmas, the last few sermons, I've just made us cover like two chapters um, for each of the sermons, which is ridiculous because in this church, we like to preach verse by verse through passages of the Bible. And if I was to do that, um, you'd hate me even more than you do already. And um, we'd be here till till dinner time. And actually, those of you who are here from Africa would probably just be like, ah, it's like being at home. Um, And the rest of you would hate me. All right, so we're not going to do that. This morning, I'm not going to go through all of chapter 20 and 21. We're going to mainly be camped in those verses that uh, Jimmy just read to you, okay? So chapter 20, uh, 22 to 32. And then we'll skip around a little bit around um, some of uh, the epistles in the New Testament as well. Um, But here's what I want to get to this morning. Um, I want to get to verse 24, uh, because I think it's one of the most outstanding verses in the New Testament. That is, it's the, one of the verses in the New Testament that jumps out at me and grabs a hold of my heart and does stuff to me, okay? Let me just bring us up to speed with where we're at to give us a little bit of context, and then we'll, we'll jump in, okay? So, remember last week, we covered chapter 19, we looked at Paul uh, coming into Ephesus And stuff happened in Ephesus that was kind of crazy. It all ended up in a riot, if you'll remember. And we talked last week a lot about idolatry. And we asked God to confront us with some of the the root idols that that can take hold of us um, and and really lead us away from putting Jesus on the throne where he belongs. Um, And and from Ephesus, Paul is going to go to Jerusalem, but he's going to go there against the advice of just about everyone he knows. All right, so there's going to be, if you read through uh, these two chapters, there's going to be a couple of prophets and a few prophetesses who are all telling him, listen, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to die. Even Luke, who writes this uh, account, the book of Acts, is one of them. One of his closest friends is saying to him, seriously, these guys are right, you should not be doing this. And, and even with all of this dissuasion, even with people saying, listen, God is saying to you, don't go, he says in verse 24, however, even, in, in, even given all that you're saying to me, dissuading me, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So just, and my, until yesterday, my whole sermon was going to be about the place of prophecy in the church today, and in our church in particular. Um, And so I just want to say a a word about that, and then we're going to leave prophecy alone, okay? So some people struggle with this. 
these people who say, who, who the, Luke says are prophets, prophetesses, they're saying, thus says the Lord, don't go to Jerusalem. And Paul is saying, no, God is telling me to go to Jerusalem. There seems like a little bit of a conflict there. Either the Holy Spirit suddenly feeling a little bit um, multi, like he's got multi-personalities or maybe he's a bit confused. Or probably what's happening here is that these prophets and prophetesses have seen what's going to happen to Paul, his arrest and eventually his death. And then they've interpreted that prophecy as you should not go to Jerusalem. Where in fact what they've seen is going to be the eventuality. Paul is eventually arrested and eventually down the line is killed. But their interpretation of that prophecy is incorrect. God's saying yes he'll be arrested and yes he should go. See, those people like us often interpret discomfort and suffering as being opposed to God's will, whereas, in fact, God often uses such things to achieve his purposes. So Paul says, yeah, I know. Wherever I go, it's not just Jerusalem. Wherever I go, my number is up, all right? They're finally going to catch up with me. I'm finally going to be arrested and killed But that's not the most important thing to me. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. That is, what is it? The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now that is amazing. I don't know if that jumps out at you, but that jumps out at me, it grabs a hold of me, it convicts me, it challenges me, it's in danger of discouraging me, and then it inspires me. And so I want to talk this morning about grace, because it seems to me that Paul understands grace and experiences grace in a way that maybe we're not getting. Because I, I just hazard a guess that most of us aren't capable of saying this with any integrity. So I want to talk about grace. I want to hone in on that verse, chapter, tw- uh, verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 24, and then the, the few verses around it. And I want to talk this morning, and this is why we've got a lot of work to do, I want to talk about seven truths when it comes to grace. Seven things about grace that are true. This is not an exhaustive list. This is not everything there is to say about grace. We could be here all day again if we tried to do that. But seven truths about grace. I'm just going to go through one by one. If you're a note taker, this is your morning. All right, feel free. Um, And then once we're through with the seven, we'll be done. How about we pray and then uh, we'll jump in. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have been guiding us through this book of Acts. And even now, as we try and, uh, try and attempt to um, cover more ground than we can, I pray that you would speak into our hearts, that everything you want to say to us this morning would be said and received and submitted to. Father, I pray this morning... Um, that this would not just be some kind of lecture, seven points about grace, but that it would be your appointed means to change us. Your word changes us as we submit to it. So please change us. Make us more eager than ever before to both understand and to experience the power of grace in our lives. 
We pray it in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. All right, number one, first truth about grace I want to talk about. Number one, grace presupposes sin and judgment. Grace presupposes sin and judgment, all right? So, another way of saying it is, for grace to be good news, we first have to understand the bad news. For grace to be good news, we first have to understand the bad news, all right? So, one of the most beautiful descriptions of grace is in Ephesians chapter 2. Let me just read Ephesians 2, and uh, let's read 8 and 9, all right? This is beautiful. This is what Paul says about grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. One of the most clear statements of grace in God's Word. You can be under no illusions that it's you that's done the work to get yourself saved, right? It is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Then, just so we know, not by works so that no one can boast. Great, beautiful, good news, gospel news to us. But it's not as beautiful as it is on its own. It's not as beautiful on its own as it is when you read in the context, all right? So you need to back it up a little bit to get the full picture. You need to go back to verse 1 of chapter 2. And this is where he says the bad news. As for you, like you sitting here and me, you were dead. That's pretty bad news. You were dead in transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the way of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest we were by nature deserving of wrath. Like in our bones, we were deserving of God's justice and wrath. Then the most, one of the most beautiful buts in the New Testament, if you excuse the phrase, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by what? Grace. You have been saved. So it's good news on its own, but how much more beautiful does it become in the context of what we really, truly deserve? Grace presupposes judgment. So we've got to have the bad news in order to truly appreciate the good news. The bad news is the dark contrast by which we see the beautiful jewel of God's grace. You ever notice that when you go to a jeweler and they get the diamonds out, right? They don't just put it on a white background or on the glass. They put it on this black felt background. It's the contrast that makes the diamond look beautiful. So as we delight in God's grace, yes, we need to make that paramount, but we mustn't lose sight of the context. I was talking to India, my five-year-old 
just yesterday, and um, I was having to sit her down and do some discipline with her. Um, yesterday was just a bit of a bad day. Um, I was probably the one who deserved most of the discipline, um, to be honest, um, which is why I'm a good person to be preaching about grace this morning, because I need it more than anyone, right? Um, but I was disciplining her, and, and what we've done from the beginning with her, even before she could understand us, we, we, we wanted to model our discipline on the grace of God. So yes, you deserve death and judgment because you threw your food at Judah. But in response to your repentance, we're, we're going to be gracious. And we, we've, we've always said, I love you, I forgive you, let's start afresh. We're cancelling that sin, we're starting from fresh. However, yesterday, before I could get to the point where I said, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this, we're cancelling your record of debt, right? Before I could get there, she just said, Daddy, 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 and interrupted me and said, you don't have to go through all this, just be gracious. <laughs> and so it was an opportunity for me to explain to her that yes, it would be gracious for me just to not even get, have any reference to her um, transgressions, but the grace, the forgiveness, the starting afresh is so much more beautiful and meaningful if she understands her sin. And it's the same for us, all right? So grace presupposes death and judgment. And so in our passage, Paul um, makes this clear in, in Acts 20, verse 25 to 27. This is what he says. Now I know that none of you uh, among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God or the whole counsel of God. Why is Paul able to say, it's not my fault if you are judged? Because he has told them both of the grace and the judgment of God. He shared with them the whole counsel of God. So it's vitally important that we do that. As we preach the grace of God, which we do here every single week, we talk about the gospel, we need to keep in view what the gospel saves us from. All right, so that's number one. Number two, grace is not dependent on our being good or bad. Grace is not dependent on our being good or or bad. Now, I think we get this broadly speaking, but it, it, I think it bears a minute or two just to make the point emphatically, all right? So grace is a gift of God that's not dependent on our works. Paul made that clear in the Ephesians 2 passage that we just talked about. But it, it also is kind of bigger than that. God's grace to us doesn't come as a result of works, but it comes to us irrespective of any of our works, good or bad. So what's the most famous, well, Christian hymn, full stop, but what's the most famous song about grace? Amazing Grace. It's a great song. John Newton, right? And his whole life, it was his life story distilled in a hymn. He was, uh, you can read about him, but he just had the most treacherous life to the point where God saved him, and then for a little bit longer until God really got him, all right? And so, by all means, read, read his story. There's a great line in that song that says, um, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And at one level, that's, that's a good way for us to think about God's grace. How much sweeter does God's grace taste when we think about how bad and wretched we are? 
So one of the reasons I'm so, so overjoyed to share this truth with you this morning is because yesterday I was a wretch. I was just terrible. I was terrible to my wife, terrible to my kids. I was argumentative. I was grumpy. I was just a bad person yesterday. And I come in here today and I talk about these things and it's not hypocrisy, it's just worship and praise, right? Because I'm the recipient of this stuff, this beautiful good news. But at an even bigger level, at the cosmic level, at the, at the eternal level, God's grace to us doesn't just come in response, or actually doesn't come to us in response to our goodness or our badness, our wretchedness. It comes to us irrespective of any of that. God's grace comes to us irrespective of it, without reference to it, unconditionally. So Paul makes this really clear. Again, we're going to keep going back to Ephesians because this is is a good book um, when it comes to the the doctrines of grace. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 to 6, he says this. God chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. Grace teaches us that God's generosity and love towards us, in love he predestined us, God's choosing of us for eternal life happens not just kind of, not just despite our badness, but without reference to it. He saves us before the foundation of the world, before we've done anything good or bad. Paul again talks about this in um, Romans 9, I think it's verse 11, where he's talking about Jacob and Esau. So that God's will in election might stand before they had done any good or bad, right? So grace is not dependent on our goodness or our wretchedness. Actually, grace comes to us without any reference to that stuff. It's pure, unconditional grace. Number three, grace can never be paid back. This is troubling for most of us. Most of us have grown up in a context where we worship, or at least we honour, the self-made man, right? Yeah, he's really rich and he's got, you know, his business is doing great, but he started from nothing. He wasn't one of those, you know, people who inherited wealth. No, he built this thing for himself. And so in that context, when it comes to receiving something on the basis of grace, we struggle. And most of us have this sense that we should at least make an attempt to pay God back. In fact, we're coming into the season of... um, grace guilt right now, right? Christmas. How many of you are dreading the present that is received from someone that you didn't buy something for, right? That happens. And what results? Grace guilt, right? That they bought me something, I wasn't planning on buying them something, now I've got to buy them something, you know, I've got to, I've got to balance the scales. That's what drives us to want to pay God back, Well, he got me something, salvation, 
I've got to give him something back at least, like a little bit, even if it's just a little bit, earn a little bit back from him. Yeah, it's, it's overwhelming. I can't do all of it, but maybe just, maybe just a little bit. When in reality, our response to God's grace ought not be to, that we should pay him back, because actually it can never be paid back. It's impossible. It, like that concept doesn't exist. Our response instead should be praise and worship and honour and glory for the gift that he's given us. So if we go back to that same passage, right? Ephesians 1, he says, verse before, verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing for he chose us, etc., etc., His first thing that he wants us to know is that our attitude towards God, because he's gracious to us, is one of praise. Now, the praise doesn't earn anything back to you. It's just the right response to this unconditional, unmerited, amazing grace. So grace can never be paid back. Not even a little bit. And we're praying this morning that God would just put to death any of that gift guilt that we're feeling as we ponder his grace. Because actually, rather than offering something back, it robs him of the glory that he's due. It robs him. So, one, two, three, four. Number four. This is a longer one. Grace is opposed to works in salvation, and grace is the source of works in sanctification. That's a big mouthful, and it's a whole sermon in itself, but tune in. This is, this is oh man, this is vital. If we're going to make any sense of what Paul says about grace, all right? Grace is opposed to works in salvation, and grace is the source of works in sanctification. So let's go back again to that Ephesians 2 passage, all right? Ephesians 2 and verse 8 to 10. Just listen really carefully to this. He says, It is by grace you have been saved, salvation, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If you take Ephesians 1 and 2 and you put it all together, this is Paul's view. In the cosmic sense, in the eternal sense, before the foundation of the world, God not only saves you by grace, but he plans good works for you to do, which are born out of grace. All of that happens before he creates anything. Let that just blow your mind. So grace is opposed to works in salvation. You can't do anything to earn your salvation, but it is the source of works in sanctification, that is, in your Christian life, in your daily growing more and more like Jesus. Let me illustrate it like this. Right now, in our backyard, there is this nectarine tree that is, um, has flowered and now it's growing fruit. It's just got little hard nectarines on it and um, the birds go crazy for it and... Um, eventually we get one or two that survive, right, by summertime. And, the, and the, it's there because years ago, when we first arrived here, um, India and I planted a little stone, uh, 
of a nectarine in the ground, and um, and I th- like it was India's idea, and I thought I was just humouring her, but it was like just be, like Caroline Springs just became Narnia all of a sudden. If you get the reference, and it, she put it in the ground, and then it j- like it just grew, like in the concrete that is our backyard, that granite-like dirt that we've got. This thing grew, and every year it produces fruit. Now, here's the thing. Grace in salvation is the seed that was planted in the ground. And grace in our works is the fruit that comes around each year. Right? Our works aren't the seed that gives birth to salvation. That comes by grace as a gift, cannot be earned. And our works in sanctification are the fruit that is born of that grace. In both cases, grace is the source. Salvation and sanctification. But we need to get the order right. Let's not get those two things confused. Remember the seed and its fruit, all right? Let's keep going. The, uh, number five. Grace is a teacher and a trainer. Grace is a teacher and a trainer. So we're going to skip over to Titus chapter 2. This is how grace functions as a teacher. Titus 2, 11 to 12. He says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Just get that. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you're like, how do I become a Christian? I thought I, just, I had to come to church. No. Our works, our attendance, our, the stuff that we bring to the table doesn't get us grace. Grace has appeared to all people for the salvation of all people. That means if you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian, this grace is for you without condition. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. What is grace? It's a teacher. It teaches us. It teaches us how to live as God's people, the people of grace, people of the gospel. So it's a teacher and it's also a trainer. So back to our passage, Acts 20, verse 32, this is what he says. Now I commit, to you, uh, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Grace is a teacher that teaches us how to live and it's a trainer that can build us up. Can build us up into maturity. Can build us up more and more into the likeness of Jesus to those who are being sanctified, made holy. It's both a teacher and a trainer. And we have access to this teacher, to this trainer. So many of us feel like we're stumbling around and not getting anywhere in our Christian life. And the whole time we have this teacher, we have this trainer to help us. We have the means of grace, the meeting of God's people on a Sunday, the, the participation in communion, the hearing God's word, the, the prayers of God's people. All of these things are God's means of grace to both teach us and train us. So avail yourselves of them. There is this unlimited waterfall of God's grace that we have access to. And so many of us are dying of thirst. 
I remember when I first became a Christian, I was 19, I was in the USA, and I got saved into a context where everyone around me was a really strong Christian and was, had really strong muscles, all right? Um, I, there's a point to this, all right? So, and I was this weedy little 19-year-old. I was, like, tiny, and if you can believe it, I was really, really skinny, right? And, and I had no idea about grace the Bible or anything else. In fact, when I first got saved, I just left my Bible open next to me and I was hoping it would just get in, all right, like through the night as I slept. And, um, and when I got back to Australia, what I did was, and this was a, a recommendation of the guy who I was rooming with in America, Canadian guy, a great man, I, um, I resolved that I would learn theology and I would get in shape. And so the first thing I did with the money that I earned over there was I bought a set of weights and put them in my room and I bought a bunch of books, philosophy, psychology and theology. And I was going to give myself a year and I was just going to read and lift weights. How did that go for me? Just take a guess. It, it didn't go well, all right? Like, just, all that happened was dust kind of settled on those. Because on my own, I wasn't, I just didn't have it. I mean, some people can do this. Some people can be self-taught, read a bunch of books, don't need to go to university, lift weights on their own, get ripped, right? Some people can do that. I can't. I can't do it. I've tried over and over again. And so what I had to do was sign up to go to Ridley College and do a degree of theology where they were going to make me learn stuff and threaten me with failure if I didn't, and I had to go to my brother who was a personal trainer and say, can you please help me lift weights, right? I needed a teacher and a trainer to help me. And look, I just hazard a guess, most of us are that spiritual weakling, right? Who they, they, want, they want to be taught, they want to be trained, but on their own, I don't know, we're just not very good at it. Am I right? So, grace is that teacher. Grace is that trainer. Let's avail ourselves of the means of grace that God has so freely poured out on us. Number six, grace is free. Some of you are like, really? Do you have, we could have, surely it could have been six things. Do you have to, do we have to go through this? Grace is free. Isn't that a tautology? Like, isn't, isn't that a redundant saying? like saying a gift is a gift. Well, at one level, yeah, it is, but I think God knows what we're prone to do in twisting grace to make it something that we can earn. He knows that that's our propensity. That's actually what we are by nature. That's part of being a child of wrath. That's what we're prone to do. And so even in his word, he makes it very, very clear. Grace is free. So in Romans 3, 23 to 24, this is a great, great passage. He says, for all of us, this is Paul again, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Notice again the bad news and then the good news. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In the Greek, the word grace and gift are essentially the same word. A gift is something you receive freely. 
despite what I received in my email this past week, an email that promised me if I made a donation to this cause, I would receive a free gift, right? That, that's a contradiction, right? Give us a donation of $10 and we'll send you a free gift. That's not free. You're not going to give it to me unless I give you a donation. That's no longer free. That's a transaction. That's how many of us view grace. But it's not the case. Grace is free and it's only grace if it's free. So back to our passage, Acts 20, 28. He says this. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. The reason grace is free is because Jesus has paid the price. As soon as you make grace something conditional, something that needs to be purchased, then Jesus' blood isn't sufficient. That's what you're saying. Jesus' blood is sufficient. The price that he paid for, to, to purchase our redemption is sufficient. When he said it is finished, he, speaking the truth, it is finished, it is done, it is paid in full. Now receive it. Receive it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. This is the one that struck me hardest this week, so I put it last. All right? Number seven, grace is not just a principle, it's a power. Now, if you're like me and you live in the world of ideas, this is something that can escape you and me. Because I think I've got grace as a concept. I think I've got the principle of grace. I think I've got, I understand God's grace in relationship to his attributes of mercy and compassion love. I think I understand grace very well. The question is, do I experience the power of grace in my life? Because the truth is, grace is not just a principle. It's not just a concept. It's not just an idea. It's not just theological understanding. Grace is power. Grace is power that we can experience as Christians, grace is the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. So if I just taught a lecture this morning about what grace is theologically, the doctrines of grace, then I wouldn't, as Paul did, I wouldn't have done as Paul did and shared with you the whole counsel of God. Because grace is more than that. Grace is the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. So here's a passage that many of us are familiar with. It's a passage that we quote often on Sunday morning as we pray before the service because we're so aware of our weakness and we're so aware of our shortcomings and limitations. And it's 2 Corinthians chapter 12. All right, remember Paul's got this thorn. We don't know what the thorn is. It might be physical ailment. It might be someone who is um, attacking his ministry and his character, uh, might be a demon, might, like, might be all kinds of things. He doesn't go into it. But he's got this thing and he's pleading with God to heal him, to save him, to rescue him from this thorn. All right? 
And so he says in verse 8 and following, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, Jesus speaking, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What does it mean that Jesus' grace is sufficient for him? In a situation where he is suffering and he wants God to take it away from him, what is he saying? What is Jesus saying? My grace is sufficient for you. He's not saying simply, remember that I'm a gracious God of the gospel. Go to your theology and remember that you're saved apart from your works and that'll get you through. It's more than that. It is that, but it's more than that. It's not just the fact that Paul understands the doctrines of grace. It is that Paul experiences the power of grace. That's what's going to get him through with a thorn in the flesh. It's the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. So I guess my question to you and really to myself all this week has been, have you asked God for that empowering presence? Now we know that all Christians have the Holy Spirit is given to us freely by grace when we're converted. But Paul, over and again, says to the church, ask, plead, request that God would fill you with His Spirit. Fill you with His empowering presence. So have you done that? Do you do that? My fear is that so many of us struggle so much in the Christian life, and we've got the waterfall of God's grace accessible to us and we've got God himself wanting to empower us he wants to say to us in the midst of our suffering and stumbling he wants to say to us my grace is sufficient for you my power is made perfect in your weakness my empowering presence is what will sustain you and persevere you so the question is are we asking for God's empowering presence I want us to be able to do that as a church. I want us to do that regularly. I'm going to ask us to do it as we close in just a minute. If you're like me, you read, we'll go back to where we started, all right? You read the passage about Paul, you know, to hell with death. I'm going, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going for it. I'm finishing the race. I'm doing my gospel ministry. That's what God's called me to or, or, you know, forget the paraphrase, let's just read it. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. You say, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be killed. I'm going anyway. Not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me, that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And if you're like me, you read that and you, and you imagine Paul standing up on a, on a precipice with his cap, uh, sorry, his cape kind of flowing in the wind like some kind of superhero. Paul isn't able to say this with integrity and conviction because he's a superhero. He's not a super Christian. He's not extraordinary. We've said over and again, the book of Acts is all about ordinary people empowered by the Spirit. 
to witness to the Lord Jesus. So if you want to be like this guy, don't buy a cape. Don't buy into any kind of theology that would say you can be this superhuman Christian. No, no. Ask God to fill you with his empowering spirit by his grace. I want to pray that God would do that for us right now. So here's what I want you to do. I'm just going to be passive here this morning. We're going to participate. If you are someone like me who struggles, stumbles through the Christian life, but you want God's power to be made perfect in that weakness, then I want you to stand up with me and we're going to pray that God would fill us with his spirit, his empowering spirit, so that our experience of grace would not just be head knowledge, but it would be a daily experience of God's empowering spirit. Let's uh, close our eyes. Let's stand together if this is true for you. If it's not, please don't stand. Um, But if you want this, then let's pray for it. Here's here's what we'll do. I'm going to leave a, a little pause here, and if you feel led by the Spirit, you can pray out loud for us, and then I'll, I'll close our time in prayer.